Welcome to Two Pastors uh, Take a Walk Someday and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Because, like, obviously we're not going to change the name of this podcast, but I just want to make it clear that we are observing all ordinances, state yes, ordinances. We, we are, are not taking a walk together. Um, and it, it, I really miss it. Um, yeah, so. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I want to talk about that a little bit. Well, get started. What's well, astonishing? Okay, so here's what's astonishing me. I am, I'm astonished by the level of disorientation I feel. I mean, I felt it in the beginning of the stay-at-home order but it really feels deep. It really, feel, it really feels disorienting at this point. I'm at a place now where I'm, I'm becoming weary of the quarantine. And at the same time, I know I don't wanna go back to way it was before the stay-at-home order. And so I'm just in this in-between I, I don't know if I'm coming or going. I hardly know what day it is. I don't know what I want to keep and what I want to lose in terms of, of, of when there's, I don't even like saying when it gets back to normal. I, I, I hope it doesn't go back to the way it was, but you know what I mean? When, when, um, we when these not, restrictions are lifted. Yes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just much more disoriented than I thought I would be in the situation. And I think one of the things that would help if we would be if we got back into our routine of walking every week. I mean, that's one thing I do miss and would like to keep, but there's so many things like, mm, I, I don't, like I really love being at home with family and I, I don't know if I want to drive into um, uh, the church office uh, every day like I was doing before. And um, I, I just don't know. I'm just astonished by my disorientation. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, it goes through waves with me. Mm. And um, I, I think, actually, I was thinking about this relatedly. Sometimes I, I, I have really dark moments, but a lot of times I recognize that there is a part of me that is not as despairing and hopeless about this season as other people. And, you know, for people who know me famously, I am a um, worst case scenario kind of gal. <laughs> like that's just where my mind goes all the time. So like if, if Colin is, my husband is, you know, later than usual from work, I immediately am like, he has been in a car accident. The police are, you know, looking through his phone, trying to contact me. Like, I, I just, I mean, I just, I go there every, every time I, I, every time I kiss my kids goodbye in the morning when I send them to school, I think, you know, if there's an active shooter, this might be the last interaction I have with them. Like, that's just where, like, my mind is just, um, a, a burden. <laughs> and, um, but so I'm just interested that on the one hand, I really accept and acknowledge that 
Um, this is a really precarious time. And on the other hand, I don't feel um, as despairing as a lot of other people do. And I was trying to figure out why that was. And I, I honestly, I think one of the experiences that I'm leaning on is um, on obviously a much less, um, a much smaller scale. I mean, there was about a year and a half of um, life when I was pastoring the Grove, um, when it was, you know, we had just voted to do transformation, two thirds of the congregation left. Um, I had to, you know, I had to go to part-time. Um, I was still, I, we had to let go our administrative person. So I was doing all my work and all that work. I was being paid part-time. I had to, you know, pull my kids out of childcare. I mean, like it just was this really, really difficult time. And um, I, I felt very committed to the work. I also felt like, I mean, it's not like I had any other options, right? So it's just kind of like this, this whole season of not seeing any real likely way that things would ever get better, you know, and not, I mean, I had earlier in the season, you know, in this journey had some plans, like, you know, we're going to do this and write for that grant, or we're going to align ourselves with that church and become a satellite campus. And like all those things fell apart. And I just found myself in this very long season of, you know, isn't that I didn't know what to do that day, but I just had no sense of how there was any strategy or plan for returning or, or becoming a vital congregation at all. And, and, and that lasted a long time. And I remember, you know, one of the things that, that really struck me at one point during that long season was there was not going to be, um, a solution. Like there was never going to be a moment where I was like, Oh, now I don't have to worry about meeting the budget or, Oh, that I just realized that, you know, I mean, if we survived, um, that it would just be this really steady, imperceptible, gradual change into something new. And, you know, what I never could have known at the time, I mean, because I didn't think we were going to survive. I thought we were going to die. Let me just be clear. Um, I just was trying to be as faithful for as long as I could. Like that was my only North Star was I couldn't see a way out of it, but I just thought, all right, um, and in fact, like it was so odd, we, we were having some people, I mean, not very many, but we were having some people join the church, um, but we were thinking, well, we, we need to close because there's no way we'll meet our budget. And so it was such a weird thing that on the one hand, you had this core group of people who were really invested and you had some new people who were coming. And so in one ways, there was more energy and vitality in the church than, but also just like huge grief and huge loss and no realistic way to move forward. And, and I, I mean, I remember I was talking with a, with a colleague, um, and, uh, you know, it's actually this, this pastor in town that we had been sort of pursuing a, a process of becoming yoked with, and then that, that didn't work. And I just said, you know, I don't know how to close a church that is growing. And it wasn't net growth, let me be clear, because so many people had left, but it was growing. And, and I said, you know, I just don't even know what faithfulness looks like. Like, how do you encourage people to like hope and dream and work for this community when you can't see any realistical, realistic way forward? And and I remember he said, like, you know, you don't, you, you, as a, as a pastor, as a shepherd, you don't want to have people, you know, go full out and hit a wall. Like you need to prepare. I don't know. It just was really, it was really, I couldn't figure out what faithfulness looked like. 
And, and the only thing that gave me peace was to realize like, okay, since I, since I don't know what to do and I, I can't see the future, I'm just going to say, I'm going to keep pastoring this church until I can't anymore. Like, even if the things that I'm doing don't seem like they will have any long-term effect or any hope of actually creating a healthy community, I'm going to pastor this church until it's no longer possible. So, because at the time we were saying, like, oh, we're going to run out of money in three months. And so what's the faithful decision? Do you, do you run the church for three months and then close down? Or you just close down and go like, there's, you know, anyway, so obviously the church did not close, but there was just this very long season where, you know, every time we looked at the budget, we were going to run out of money in three months. And then we'd look at it again in two weeks and we were going to run out of money in three months. And that, you know, it just was this very slow, um, it was just a long time when we were doing things that we felt were faithful, but we didn't um, naturally, in the natural, think it was going to make any difference. And I think, you know, I see a lot of similarities between that time and this time, and that there's just so many unknowns. And there are so many, I mean, it's not like doomsday predictions. I mean, there are just so many realistic pieces of evidence and data that suggest that, you know, there's no way to resume doing anything. I mean, you know, they're just, it's really hard to imagine how life could be good on the other side of this, if there even is another side of this, right? And I think that the pendulum has kind of swung from people thinking this is a blip to people thinking this is just, you know, un- movable, unchangeable reality that we're going to have to adapt to, you know, and I just, I, I think what is comforting to me is I feel like on a smaller scale, I have been in this situation before of being able to say, you know what, I don't have the comfort of knowing I'm going to do this and then I'll do that and then I'll do that. And then presto, everything will be okay. But I've, lived in a place where you just, you know, you do the next right thing and you do the next right thing, you do the next right thing. And, um, you know, the reality is I don't make reality. Jesus does. And I trust that God is good beyond my ability to distribute goodness on God's behalf. And so I don't know what will happen and, and terrible things could happen, but I believe that God will be faithful even in the midst of terrible things. But I also just have had the experience in my own small story that sometimes when you can't see how an ending could be good, um, there's actually a better ending than you ever could have hoped or imagined. And that's certainly my experience right now. I pastor a church that I did not think was possible um, because my concept of what was possible was just too small. And just the, you know, the, the phase of destruction um, had to be bigger than I thought. Um, we could recover from. Anyway, so that that's kind of what is giving me some deep sense of hope in this moment. Um, yeah, that's really helpful uh, because one of the things I'm wrestling with in this season is the effectiveness of my own leadership. And I, I, I probably should be thinking more faithfulness instead of effectiveness uh, that is looking for results uh, of my leadership um, and and I, I love what you said about, okay, how, how can I be faithful? Um, if, if we're going to close, how can I just pastor this church in, in, in a way that is faithful until that time? And that time didn't come. Yeah. And I think, 
Um, it's interesting. I, a friend of mine um, read a story once in the New York Times about um, a father and son who were the last living members of a Christian community in Iraq. And the story was just talking about them as they walked to worship um, on a Sunday, knowing it was just going to be the two of them. And, and it was interesting because we had a conversation about, you know, if you were in that space, it was just you and your child and you were the last members of this Christian community. Like, would you, could you do that? Could you step out into faithfulness knowing that it wouldn't be, you know, quote productive, but it would just be faithful and be faithful for faithfulness sake. I mean, and I guess like the place where that, the biblical story that that feels really relevant to me, I mean, and I hate this story, but it's like Abram walking up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, right? Like Mm -hmm. there, it was just, faithfulness seemed so counterproductive in that moment. And I think we, you know, we're so brainwashed by our consumer capitalist empire culture that we think, you know, God makes sense and being faithful makes sense as long as it produces results that we would categorize as good um, or, or worth it. And that's just, that's not the economy of the, of the kingdom. And I think that's, um, you know, that's showing us something. And it's not that, I mean, you and I are all about, you know, growth and new creation. And I think that those are evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so that's not, there's not evidence of that in our community. um, That's a problem. So this isn't about resignation, but it is about saying, you know, how do you, how do you maintain faithfulness in those seasons where it looks like it doesn't matter? And then to be able to say, you know, this has meaning in and of itself. Um, and maybe more meaning now than than ever before. Um, so that's good. That's good. Wow. So what are you thinking about? Um, I am thinking, and and this is not in any way a novel insight, but um, you know, this time feels. Sorry, now you're gonna hear my kids. Um, this time feels very apocalyptic to me. Not because I necessarily see the imminent destruction of the world, whatever, or, you know, not because I necessarily think the popular understanding of revelation is coming to pass, but because of the actual meaning of the word apocalypse, meaning uncovering and meaning revealing. And so this is such um, an apocalyptic time for me because I just see things so plainly that, you know, I, I thought before, but I, but, but, you know, I could understand why maybe other people didn't see it. Um, and I, I, this, I mean, everything, I, I so believe that everything in the United States of America comes back to race. Every, 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 every single thing comes back to the original sin of this nation that we have never acknowledged, much less begin to atone and repent and reconcile from. And so, you know, just everything from, the insanely higher death rates um, from coronavirus in the African-American community that is just so out of line with the proportion of African-Americans in our nation. I mean, the fact that I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but my top of the head memory is that there's something like 11% of people in this nation are African-American, but 30% or 33% or sometimes I've even seen 50% of the people who are dying of coronavirus are African-Americans. So that's just, 
you know, and it is not, let's be clear, got anything to do with any difference physiologically or biologically between African-American and white Americans. It has got everything to do with just the toll of systemic racism on black and brown bodies in our nation so that people are, you know, already living with um, you know, asthma from environmental racism and are already living with, you know, just the the physiological costs of poverty that's a result of, you know, just constantly getting lack of access to equity in terms of schools and economic opportunities. If you look at this PPP program of you know, that the, the pay, t- Paycheck Protection Program that was meant to go to small businesses everywhere so that they could continue to pay their employees and like Black and women-owned businesses, but mostly people of color and their businesses. I, I mean, less than, I, I mean, like 95% are going to businesses that are run by white men even. I mean, it's just everything is so clear and and the latest among the magnitude of things is to see the news about protesters in the state of Michigan who go into the Capitol building in full tactical gear carrying assault weapons and stand and scream obscenities um, into the faces of police officers holding tactical weapons in the state capitol where they're banned, and they all go home, not a scratch on anybody's head. And, you know, it's not that I want harm to come to anybody's body. Um, I don't. Um, it's just that I grieve that white privilege is not human privilege. And I just find it. I just anybody who can say that there's anything approaching equity for white bodies and black bodies in this country is just willfully ignorant. And if you say that you know black people cannot march in a street peacefully protesting the death of unarmed citizens without getting arrested and tear gassed, but white bodies can storm a Capitol building in violation of state mandated lockdown and scream in the faces of police officers who by the way are wearing masks to protect the protesters but the protesters are screaming you know meaning unloading their breath which potentially is full of virus and you know they're not engaging in any protection i mean like it's just and it is it it's just right there and i i am just you know, one thing that as people of faith, we ought to be able to do is just really name the brokenness and the power of evil in our lives. And I don't need, it's not that I'm saying that even those people who I think are so clearly under the sway of the prince of lies, it's, and, and I'm not saying that they're evil or I want them destroyed. I don't, I don't. Um, but I do as a person of color want to be able to say, I mean, as a, as a white person want to be able to say that I'm not calling for the destruction of those white bodies. I'm not saying that their lives don't matter. I'm just saying we need to be able to say it really is this bad. It really is this bad. And as a white person, I can say that without saying that, that my life is without value. I mean, you know, that, that these things don't, I feel like so many white people just 
need to like contextualize and hedge and find a way of saying like, well, that's an exaggeration or that's not really. And, and what's at stake is you feel like, well, if I admit it's this bad, then as a white person, somehow I, I can't, like, I can't love myself or I can't, I, I can't claim my own worthiness to exist in this. Con- I mean, you can say it, you can acknowledge that it's really this bad. Um, and, and I, I just, there's part of me, I mean, and I thought this for years, right? Like before we all had cell phone cameras, when people of color talked about the kind of police brutality they experienced, white people, because their own experience was so different, could legitimately say, I just can't believe that's happening. But now everything that we, everything that people of color have been telling us has happened, happens to them, that before we couldn't see, now we can see it with our own eyes. And, and so I think there's just an extra level of responsibility and accountability that's on all of us that if you know the truth and you willfully choose to support lies, then, then that's a level of culpability um, that you have that maybe you didn't before when you were honestly ignorant, but nobody's ignorant now. Everybody sees this. Um, and Does just, everybody see it? I mean, listen, people might choose not to see but that doesn't mean if you choose to be blind, Jesus would say, like, I'm, you know, I'm not mad at people who are blind, but I am mad at people, you know, I'm mad at the Pharisees who are, you know, who are blind and are choosing to stay blind. Mm. I, I mean, it's just, it's all out there. And so now the question is, you know, what do we do about that? And I think so, also, I think sometimes people, white people feel like I can't acknowledge it because I don't have a plan to fix it. And I mean, <laughs> Okay, but you don't have to have a plan to fix it just to name that it's truth. And and not having a plan to fix it doesn't justify pretending it's not a problem. Um, it's not a, I mean, just read the prophets. Like you just have to um, name evil and condemn it and say, I don't, maybe you say, I don't know how to fight it. I don't know how to fix it, but I can say it's evil, not people because my enemies are not flesh and blood but this spirit of white supremacy is evil and it's in opposition to everything that the kingdom of god is about and if we are people who claim that jesus christ is lord we need to stand against it yeah one of the things that has um really saddened me over the years is um the inability of poor and working class uh, white people to see how much they have in common with people of color. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie slash documentary, uh, what is it called? I think it's called Holy Chicken. It's by the same guy um, who did Supersize Me about McDonald's, uh, Spurlock, I think. Is Morgan Spurlock, yeah. Morgan Spurlock, yes. He, he did a, another movie about the chicken industry. And I, just, I watched it last week because it was free on YouTube. And um, there's a, 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 a place in that movie where a white middle-aged chicken farmer, I believe in Alabama, burst into tears. I mean, this is full on crying because the the chicken industry, and he names several big companies, are squeezing him so that his family farm is going to be out of business. 
and and I was watching this scene feeling feeling hurt for him and then I thought but at the same time this man is probably one who votes against his own interests right he's so identified with white supremacy that he just can't see how uh, that thinking that spirit on the one hand it it, it lifts him by giving him this sense of superiority over or, or, over others. But on the other hand, it, it is crushing him. It's crushing his life. It's crushing his family. It's crushing his business. And yeah, it, it, it's amazing to me that it's, it's so difficult for um, uh, folks in that position to see, see, see the real enemy. This, um, my, my friend, Justin Perry, who does a lot of work on equity in the city, but he, and he is um, professionally a therapist, has his own practice and helps uh, with recovery. And he always calls white supremacy a drug. And it just, the analogy is so helpful because a drug makes you feel good, even as it kills you, totally destroys you. Yeah. And people are addicted to it even as you know even after they recognize that it's destroying them and i think you know he, that's his tagline all the time is like white supremacy is a hell of a drug and that's not a you know is it just does white supremacy destroy people of color yes but the but the pisser of it all is it destroys white people too um it destroys everybody's humanity um because there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God except for God the King and the rest of us, you know, beloved friends and subjects of God. And when we distort that order, I mean, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden, when, you know, the snake came and said, you don't need to be subject to God in this way, either you don't need to be subject to God's law and you can have this thing that makes you like God. And, and that is what white supremacy is, is it for white people, it makes us say you can be like God with respect to these other groups of people. That's what, you know, misogyny and the patriarchy does as well. It just sets people above and apart and superior to other groups of people. And it destroys everyone. Um, it just destroys everyone. So, wow. wow. It's all there. It's all there. I mean, and like any crisis, like any, um, I mean, like any tragedy, any national crisis, it, it reveals things. It reveals things that the veneer of normalcy could cover. And now it's just, it's all out there. Hurricane Katrina. I mean, every, every, every single thing. So, yeah. Huh. All right. Well, so what are you thinking about? <laughs> um, I mean, so many things am I thinking about? I, we, um, are getting ready. I mean, I suppose I'll just collapse it into, in, into what is coming next. Well, we're preaching a sermon series together. I mean, apart, but together, um, on the parables and, and we at the Grove are just coming out of a sermon series on, the upside down kingdom of God. So trying to just help people really understand and see that the kingdom of God is not 
I think as it's often portrayed in popular culture, like an elevated version um, or an idealized version of this life. <laughs> um, and that th the kingdom of God is just radically different. Um, good, but just radically different so much that it's just the opposite of what we see as um, rightly ordered. Um, and, and so the upside down kingdom is kind of a shorthand term for that. That is not, I mean, that biblical scholars and theologians have been using for you know, generations. Um, and so we've just been in, in that for this last season, you know, the, the parade you know, on Palm Sunday, Easter, and then we've been talking about some resurrection, um, post-resurrection stories and how that reveals just like, because you just need to know um, that there are just elements of the kingdom of God that are different. You have that kind of ability to see so that you can start conforming your life to, to those norms. Um, and so really we're going to um, do a series on the parables next. And I just think um, I've been thinking about them and, and this is just really an expansion of that same theme of, you know, how is the kingdom of God different than the empires of this world and and as citizens who live in the kingdom now and and not fully i mean there's some things we have already and then some things that are not yet but but we do we are already citizens of the kingdom of god and so we need to know what the culture of our real home is and the parables of jesus i think are just really helpful because they're sticky and they're portable and you they they can just kind of become lenses through which you you see life here and now and, and sort of choose your allegiance. And so um, that's what we're gonna do. And I don't know, um, I, I think we're both doing it, but we've been talking all week and so we're starting at different places, but um, I, cause Wait, you're I gonna start we were, with- what, what are you starting with? Well, you're starting with the prodigal son, right? Yeah, aren't you? No, no, because I just did the prodigal son and that's February. right. That's so right. That's right. I I'm not because um, I I was doing a let love lead sermon series and the final of that was love leads us home and so I was talking about the prodigal son in that story um, in that the love of the father led the son home even um, even and especially when he had wandered so far in search of the good life outside of the kingdom of God so. Um, not that anyone anyone ever fully empties that parable of meaning. Um, certainly not me, but I just, you know, there's a there's a lot of parables. So um so I've just been thinking about where to start. Um and and um and it's interesting because Luke has the happiest parables. And when you look at the parables in in Mark and in Matthew, um, I mean they're I mean they're not they're not happy. Um necessarily um so anyway so i'm just thinking about that and and i'm thinking about a um a eugene peterson quote that i used in the sermon last week um but he's just talking about you know um well i'll just read it to you um left to ourselves most of what we imagine about god most of what we imagine god to be and do is wrong nearly all of what our culture tells us god is and does is wrong not dead wrong, mind you. There's an astonishing amount of truth and goodness and beauty mixed into it, but enough wrong that if we swallow it whole, we risk a sickness unto death, which is Kierkegaard's diagnosis. Revelation is a radical reorientation of reality. 
God reality, church reality, soul reality, resurrection reality. We require a continuously repeating immersion into the revelation of God and scriptures and Jesus as a protection against the lies of the devil. And they're such affable lies, lies that smilingly seduce and distract us from the cross of Christ, the lies that genially offer to show us how to depersonalize the living God into an idol customized to our use and control. Um, and I just, I really resonate with this idea that if we don't really ground ourselves, and I love that he says in scriptures and Jesus, I mean, saying that it's, it's not just scripture, it's also relationship and communion with the living Christ, right? So it's both. Um, but if we're not continually grounding ourselves in the revelation of scripture and the revelation of Christ, then we begin to you know, read the scripture through the lens of our culture instead of reading the culture, the culture through the eternal lens of the revelation of scripture and relationship with Jesus. And then we just begin to function under the power of the king of lies. And, and what's so destructive, I mean, it's, it's not like we're not seduced by lies about genocide or lies about you know, sexual abuse or lies about crushing poverty. We're seduced by lies that like, hey, everything's really okay. You know, it's not that bad. You know, the only pe people who are suffering are people who haven't taken personal responsibility, you know, that, that you know, heaven is just going to be, um, you know, what God promises you is success in your MLM business and you know God's gonna help you lose 30 pounds and and God's gonna help your children you know become national merit scholars. I mean just all these ways that we we collapse the living God into like an idol or talisman to help us make our dreams come true and our dreams are shaped by the empire and not by the promises and revelation of scripture. And so I just think I've been thinking about that and just thinking about how these parables, I mean, because they're so sticky and because they're so confusing, I mean, the power of them is you, you can't understand them. And once we understand something, we tend to just let it go. Um, and because we can't fully understand them, they stay with us. And then they begin to shape how we see the world, how we see God, how we see ourselves and how we see church. And so that's what I'm thinking about. And, and the parable um, we're starting with, I think it's Friday and I really need to know. I mean, I'm, I think I'm going to start with the wise and foolish builders, um, particularly because the first question that leads into that parable is Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Mm -hmm. And then he says, you know, if there's a, a builder who builds on rock and the storm comes and his house stands, and there's a builder who builds on sand and the storm comes and his house collapses. And, you know, the rock is here, you know, calling Jesus Lord and then doing what he says. Um, and that's different than he doesn't say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't accept me as your Lord and Savior. I mean, that's, it's not about praying a prayer or why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't worship me. That's not what it is. It's why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say. And so, you know, if we take that parable seriously, then we have to go like, well, what, what did Jesus say? And, and am I doing it? And, or have I just, allowed grace to become a placebo so that I just am an empire builder. Um, and I only do things that seem like they're going to work. And my understanding of what works is shaped by the empire and not by the revelation of who God is.
and who's, you know, the mover in yeah. the universe. We were uh, in a series on uh, parables just before the stay-at-home order, and we were uh, going through parables in the Gospel of Matthew, especially the parables of the kingdom specifically. And um, I remember reading, and I don't know who said this, but uh, uh, someone said that Jesus told parables on two levels. The one level was the everyday image that everyone could, could get, right? A sower went out to sow, right? And then the other level was the, 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 the kingdom, the upside down kingdom meaning. And the, the part of the reason that the parables are so dangerous is that one could hear it on that first level and quickly walk away thinking, okay, I know what that means. Mm-hmm. And you totally don't, you don't get it. And it, and you're right, the parables are sticky. So once it sticks, and once you think you understand, you know, because you've got that first level of meaning, you walk away and you totally don't get it. And, and you're not in the kingdom and you, you're not getting the kingdom reality that the parable is teaching. And so in that way, it's really dangerous. And Jesus told the parable so that we would be forced to to kind of drill down, to keep asking questions. Now, now what does this mean exactly? Now, why, why did he put it this way? And uh, that's why so many of the parables kind of end with a surprise. And they're, they're meant to make you stop, think, and to seek God for the, the real application of the parable. And if you don't do that work, there's real danger in totally missing what Jesus is is saying and and I yeah and I think the parables are like intentionally destabilizing yeah I mean the reality is like you go back and look at the parables again and I mean as I was doing in preparation for the series and you're like gosh I mean these are harsh I mean so often it's you know <laughs> You know, well, there's a many, lot of people end up weeping and gnashing of. Tears. I was just about to say that. Yeah, I was just and about. Then you to look, and it's just so easy that you filter out the parts of the gospel that unsettle you. So for for me, the parts of the gospel that unsettle me most deeply are, you know, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the, you know, the narrow road, and you know why, you know, the you call me Lord, Lord, and I I don't even know you. Now I will say, some people, that that's the part that they find grounding and then the parts that unsettle them are like I have other sheep who are not of this flock or I you know the you know so I mean wherever you end up on the spectrum of uh, of, you know whatever grace versus works or I mean what you know there there's there's stuff in here that's going to unsettle you so you can't just go like oh I you know it's all good no matter what I do or oh you know, you better get right or else you're not going to guess what, or you're going to get what's coming for you. Like you can't, you can't live really near either of those poles because Jesus said things that are going to unsteady you and destabilize you. And I, and again, I think as much as we hate it because we like to be in control. I mean, what did Adam and Eve hate? They, I mean, why was it so attractive? They're living in paradise. They're literally living in paradise. So when you're living in paradise, why in the world do you need the knowledge of good and evil? You're living in paradise. Why do you need it? Because it's there, right? Because I don't, they, they don't, and we don't want to live dependent on the goodness of God. We want to know, want to know. so that we can control and, and the parables will destabilize us and leave us, you know, hoping in the goodness of God, hoping 
in the love of Jesus on the cross, but not, I, I mean, they just, they destabilize you. And, and these, and Jesus saying, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I mean, and we, we talk about this a lot that, you know, so many of us, we call Jesus Lord and Savior, or really in, in vernacular of American Christianity, we call Jesus our Savior. Because the Savior is the person who gets you out of trouble and brings you safely home to paradise. Lord the, Lord is is somebody, the Lord is somebody who tells you what to do and you yeah. do it. Yeah. A Lord who's somebody is someone who has the authority to modify your behavior. And the Lord is someone to whom you are responsible. And we don't like to call Jesus our Lord because I just want to do whatever I want and then go to heaven when I die. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah. 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 Someone once said, we want Jesus as our mascot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, I just, this, this, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm preaching. How about you? Well, I'm thinking about, um, the language I've been using, um, around COVID-19, especially when I talk to our elders and, um, uh, church members, you know, I started out saying quite a bit about how this season is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. I, I kept saying, and over the past few weeks, it has started to sound like profiting. It, it's it's starting to sound like um, how can we use this to grow our church. Um, I was saying to you before we started recording how, you know, embarrassed and convicted I am because I've been comparing our number of YouTube views with other churches and other pastors. And, um, and I'm starting to think, well, what, what does it matter? What, what does it matter if we simply use this as an opportunity for us, it, it just, it's starting to feel very selfish and self-centered and um, not kingdom-centered. And I, I'm feeling really convicted around that. And so I'm, I'm moving to the language of inviting. I'm asking, what is God inviting us into? Because what, what does all of our work during this quarantine matter if it does not help us to joyfully serve our neighbors more. I think by accident, not by, certainly not by my design, but I, I, I think the reality is I've slipped into a thinking that it's about my church and our survival. And I've just, over the past couple of days, been really convicted by that. And um, I, I, I just want to move my language to, you know, what is God inviting us into? And um, so that that's just what I'm thinking about. It's Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's so real. I, it, the tension is so hard because when you are, you know, when you are trying to be intentional 
about doing the work of revitalization and and saying which we we both firmly you know passionately believe that local churches really matter and and we believe that um you know individuals coming into life changing life saving relationship with the risen jesus that really matters and that you and I both believe that that most often happens in the context of real local community, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, to be um, really, to, to really care about the vitality of our local congregations is faithful. I mean, it is it matters. faithful. Yes. And to be able to say, you know, how it can slip over into, um, you know, just sort of, I mean, to borrow Brueggemann's terms, like empire thinking of like, you know, producing and, um, you know, looking like a, like a superstar pastor. And I mean, you know, just sort of that tension between what a thing is and what a thing looks Looks like. And, 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 you know, I think, um, I mean, it's just really hard. And so, so much of it is about, I mean, what you're doing um, is really paying attention to the two intentions, which is so funny. Like coming up um, in school, um, one of I was a I was a music major, and so I was with a lot of like performance, like theater people, and and what, a part of the language that people used all the time that used to just drive me nuts. Um, because I was also a science person. So I was just very into like, a thing is what it is, right? Like just, you know, um, but they were always talking about intention and like your intention has to be pure and intention. And that's just like, that's language um, of performers. And like, if you, I don't recommend this, but like, if you listen to a masterclass on acting or, you know, they'll just talk about your intention and having a pure intention. And it used to just drive me crazy because it was so like, I just felt like pretentious and airy fairy and I, whatever. And it's just so interesting how that link, that concept um, is, it drives me nuts how relevant it is to my life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And And then secondarily as a pastor and as a mother, honestly, like a lot of times I, I just how easy it is for things to be performative, you know, like, I want to look like a good pastor. Um, I want to look like a good Christian. I want to look like a good mother. And sometimes in order to look like those things, you, you can betray the essence of what they actually are. So like, I'm, I'm aware of it. And sort of a little example, like when I'm parenting my kids and sometimes that's in public, I, you know, I want people to look and be like, oh, she's a good mom. And so sometimes I'm harsher with my kids in public than I am than I should be, right? Or I'm holding them accountable for a standard that I actually haven't done the work of implementing in the privacy of our home. But like, I'm aware that the person who's watching this would expect, you know, my kids to speak in a certain way or behave in a certain way. And, you know, in those moments, you sell out being a good mother so that you can look like a good mother or look like the person across from you categorized as a good mother and the same thing with pastoring I mean that's why so many churches get in trouble because they will say sort of you know in this particular decision option x is what it would look like to be faithful 
to the gospel. But if I choose option X, you know, it will cost me these resources or no one will see it or, you know, donors A, B, and C will leave. And so I just need to, you know, kind of compromise in this scenario so that I can hang on to the resources I think I need to, you know, save the institution itself. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, it's just very, but it's all about, you know, what's your pure intention. And it drives me crazy <laughs> that. Well, I that think thing, that, oh, go ahead. Is, no, nothing. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that leads me to um, <laughs> what I'm preaching this week. Um, as you said earlier, I'm, I'm preaching the prodigal son and I'm just totally captivated by the word prodigal because we use it to define, you know, a wayward sinner who has come home. And um, one definition, um, I wrote it down here. It says the word prodigal means extravagant to the point of reckless. Mm -hmm. And so that means that every person in that parable from the father to the younger son to the older son, they're all prodigals, extravagant to the point of reckless. And I think the focus this week is going to be, oftentimes we focus on the extravagance of the younger brother, but I, I think I want to focus on the extravagance of the father that um, is healing, potentially healing for both brothers. And um, yeah, yeah I think that's, that's so interesting. Like there's a song that's pretty popular right now, but it's also pretty controversial. The Reckless Love of God. Do you know it? No. Um, By. Uh, I don't know, but you could Google it. Reckless Love of God. And we sing it. People love it at the Grove, but like people don't like it as a song. Like some theologians or self-appointed or otherwise say like, oh, you can't call God's love reckless. But I mean, that's, you're exactly right. Like a lot of people think that that parable should be called the prodigal father. And it, you know, and of course it's an analogy. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio, but clearly the father in, in the story is the figure of God, I, I think. And so that is one of the things that Jesus is telling with this parable is that God recklessly loves God's creation. And, and I think that is offensive to us because we want to say, we want to understand God as being in control in the way that we understand being in control. And so that we don't like that notion of recklessness when it's applied to God, even when it's about love. But I, and I also think it's so interesting to pair that parable with the one I'm using and to say like, yeah, if you're somebody who's real comfortable with Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? You're building your house on sand and your house is going to collapse. And if you're the kind of person who kind of nods your head and goes, yep, then, then seeing the reckless loving God in the prodigal son is going to make you real uncomfortable. And if you're the kind of person who's really loves the idea of a recklessly loving God, then to hear Jesus say, if your house is on sand, it's going to collapse, that's going to make you really uncomfortable. And, and sort of trying to live in the tension of, a witness that holds up both of those truths yeah. is really challenging and yet can't throw any of it out. That's right. That's right. And I think it is this extravagant, reckless love of God that allows us to let go of what a thing looks like and, yes. and, and focus on what a thing actually is. Because 
if I'm not, if I don't know myself to be beloved and enfolded in that grace, then yeah, I'm going to be all about building up an image and and mm-hmm. focused on what a thing looks like, what I look like, what the church looks like, what the ministry looks like. And I'm going to be all about sort of contextualizing and lowering um, the standard of what good is so that I can meet it mm-hmm. instead of being able to honestly say, you know, this is the good that God has called us to. And, and just because I can't meet it, that doesn't mean that this isn't ontologically what good is. And um, you just, you need both. Yeah. Um, Well, we've come to the end of another (laughs) long rambling podcast between two pastors who can't take a walk. Um, And it's showing. And it really is true. Was it, who said like, I don't know, there's some famous philosopher who talks about like, there's a, like I, I, it comes through walking. It's like a Latin ambulatory. Mm, mm-hmm, some, I don't know what it is. It's true. I really think, I don't think as well now that we're not walking uh, together. So I really, I really miss that. But maybe come May 8th, when the stay at home order is lifted, we can take a walk as long well, as we're six feet apart. I don't know about in your community, but we're asking, we're having people ask, well, when, when are we going to get back together? And, uh, some are suggesting mid-May, and that feels a bit early to me. But yeah, I'm meeting with my session next week, and I, um, I mean, for me, and I was consulting with some people, and especially uh, some healthcare professionals within our congregation. And I really think that the faithful thing to do as shepherd leaders of the community is to wait until June before. Um, before you gather in person. Um, that's what I think. So we'll see. I don't know how the session might, you know, push back against that, but that mm-hmm. I think is what I'm going to recommend next week. Anyway, if you want to hear Yolanda's sermons, you need to check out the Derida Presbyterian podcast on the Membeam website and you should Google Podbean. Podbean. Thank you. Membeam is a, is an elementary school literacy program, but Podbean is the uh, website where you can get Yolanda's messages and you can uh, Google Derida Presbyterian Church and pop over to their website. And if you would like to hear sermons from The Grove, you can go to iTunes and look for The Grove Church Podcast. And if you want to find out more about what's going on at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can even sign up for our weekly e-newsletter and you can sign up for Yolanda's weekly e-newsletter too. Um, Or not, you can email him. That's right. There you go. <laughs> yeah, wait, what are you are you pastor e hinton at gmail.com? Yes. Let's see. I just there you got it. All the ways to get in contact with us. Thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week. Bye.